Bagel Dodger named Barry. Oh, Barry, it's a special edition because we have not done one of these editions in some nine months. Someone in the group mentioning that apparently this is ready for a birth because it's been nine months, a gestation joke, Barry. <laughs> so it is one of our Q&A episodes, but because we are nothing, Barry, you will agree with me, if not givers, we have more to offer you the listener of this fine podcast. Yes, Barry, we are going to be offering part one, only part one, not the entire thing, of our fabulous interview with Hall of Famer Sean Waltman, the one, two, three kid, X-Pac, six. Oh my God, Barry, he's got a lot of different names, but it was a great interview. It, it was a good, what a great guy too. And I had no idea what to expect. You had, you had reached out to him. I think it was via Twitter. Uh, and it, the fact that he was so excited to come on and was so enthusiastic about it. And I had no idea what to expect. And the next thing, you know, we're talking old school Florida wrestling for like, you know, that that's like a dream for me. So Jeff, this may be my favorite interview of all time. Well, let me just put a caveat on it before uh, Chris Zaucha reaches for the hand cream berry because he thinks the Kevin Nash stories are about to come. No, <laughs> no, no. What we're doing with Sean Waltman is yes. we're discussing the early part of his career because Sean Waltman, uh, at the very beginning, Barry, nothing if not a CWF wrestling fan. He discusses the very first card he went to as a kid that got him hooked. So we're going to be discussing... The majority of it will be spent around the early part of his career. He goes into uh, his time in the Super J Cup with New Japan, I think, in 1993, which is a great story. Okay, we throw out one WWE story, but it's not a Kevin Nash story. You know, we have prohibitions here on the show, Barry. So before we get to the Q&A portion, Barry, I got a little surprise for you, my man. I love it. Yes. Well, now it is my turn, Barry to do F, marry, or kick to the curb. And in honor of our good friend who submitted a question, we'll be reading a little bit later, Jesus Salas Rodriguez, my man, this one's for you. Barry, we're doing F, marry, or kick to the curb, the Latina edition. Oh, yes. Now you're talking. So, Mr. Rose, I am going to be sending you three photos right now. Let all right. know when you get them. Yes. Barry, I'm a giver because these are all smoking hot women. If they're Latina, they're smoking hot. I, I absolutely. So two of those photos came through. Third one? Third one just, oh, Jesus. Okay. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, Barry, because I am nothing if not a giver, I have not given you a bad one in the bunch. Can you agree, my, my friend? Oh, these are all, all three are home runs. Absolutely. Yes, we didn't go for any singles on this one. Barry, F, Mary, kick to the proverbial curb. We are offering the Latina edition. First, Penelope Cruz, second, the beautiful Selma Hayek, in a bikini, by the way. I know you appreciate that photo. And finally, third, Shakira. Colombian yeah. women, Barry. Oh, man, Colombian women. Latin Absolutely women in gorgeous. general. Yeah, Latin yeah, women Yeah, but Colombians are like, nah, I'm going to sound, I'm putting it out there. No, Latin yeah. women are beautiful. Colombian women especially are just uh, unbelievable. And Shakira, you know, underneath my... My clothes, boy, it uh, wouldn't be a bad proposition, I got to tell you. So, Barry, take your choice, my man. Which one you take, which one you kick in the curb, and which one you marry in. Yeah, so again, not a, there's not a dog in the bunch on this one. I am going to kick to the curb Penelope Cruz, which just sounds saying so bizarre, considering she's probably one of the most beautiful women on this planet. The real contest here 
is who I want to wind up with full time. Is it Shakir? Is it Salma Hayek? So Salma Hayek, as with any red-blooded uh, male uh, worldwide, from dusk till dawn, it all comes down to. Oh yeah. It all comes the down state. to that fifteen minutes. Exactly. It's like we'll never we'll never get rid of it. in a hundred years. People will still be fucking talking about that. That's pretty incredible. Shakira, though. And here's the thing. I, I'm not a fan of Shakira's music, and I'm not a fan of her voice. It's almost like she's got this Colombian yodeling thing going, and I'm not a fan. But then you watch her on stage, and mm-hmm. again, you're a fan. Uh, and I have had a crush on her uh, for years. So I I would uh, – I guess it's – I'm going to F – Salma Hayek, but I am going to marry Shakira in the hopes that I can do multiple effings uh, with that. Uh, have you ever seen the the hips don't lie when her, she starts to move her hips? Oh, yeah. so, oh my and God. Might I just say that, in fact, those hips don't lie, as a matter yes. of fact. Yes, absolutely amazing. And Barry, I'm going to agree with you 100% on your selections. Wow. Because, yeah, this is... Woo. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, Jesus Salas Rodriguez, my friend, I hope you appreciate our efforts in naming our favorite Latinas. And again, no J-Lo. No, no, you can keep <laughs> uh, By the way, yes. Alex, Alex Rodriguez kicked to the curb by J-Lo. Did you hear about that, Bear? Yeah. Couple of narcissists. I can't believe it didn't oh, work yeah. out. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. So, all right. Now that we're past that very time to get to our exciting Q&A section. And what? let me just say. On behalf of Barry and Lou and myself, a round of applause to the folks in Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the Facebook group, because some solid, solid questions here. We had one person, <coughs> John Doe, who, you know, decided to have a little fun, didn't want to ask a real question. So guess what? No, no, no. Your question isn't answered, mister. Okay. We're going to start off with Sam Nord. Lou, please join us because Sam's question is specifically for you, my man. Ah, do tell. Wanting to know, Lou, did you discover wrestling pre or post Roy Shires? How old do they think you are, Lou? Good question. Uh, (laughs) I can tell you, regrettably, I didn't begin my fandom in wrestling until about three years after the uh, demise of Roy Shires' promotion. So a shame, Lou, that you're not a little bit older because, of course, Roy Shires, especially from the 60s and into the mid-70s, just some of the best wrestling anywhere. I think uh, any historian or archivist like Mr. Rose would agree to that. So uh, so thank you, Lou. I appreciate that. Next question, uh, gentlemen, please join me. Uh, Drew Samuels wants us to show some respect for Al Zaucha, who recently we lost. So raising an adult beverage in the memory of Al. Absolutely, Drew. Thanks for pointing that out to us. Next question, Barry Rose. Kevin Dignam wants to know, give me the top three matches you've seen live. Yeah, boy, is that a tough one too, Jeff. So I, uh, so with most of these questions, I I got to look at them. I, I couldn't come up and, you know, that that's a hard one because the second I give you my that's three what answers she said. that, it, well, no, that's not always what she says, but again, you know, at our <laughs> Sometimes age, right. she says, is it, spo- is it supposed to be like this? Is it so anyway? Right. What is that? <laughs> right. Lip, lip noodles again for dinner. Exactly. Uh, so this is a tough one. And I know that when I give my three choices uh, uh, later on, I'll go, fuck, why didn't I say this one? But Terry Funk winning the NWA world title for Jack Briscoe will always be the highlight of my live pro wrestling career. Nothing can ever uh, match it. But two matches that I saw, 
Uh, one was I saw Brett versus Owen at the Garden, which was WrestleMania 10. Nice. And nice. That, that stands out because, it, for the most part, that card was not great. Uh, there was the ladder match between Shawn Michaels and Scott Hall, Razor Ramon. That was a good match. But a lot of the rest was just was shit. So this stands out as a really good match. There was a match that took place in 1976 on Miami Beach. And in my opinion, it was two of the best wrestlers in the U.S. at that time. Dick Slater versus Bob Orton Jr. And these were two guys that had been tag team partners just months earlier uh, in Georgia. And uh, Slater was down here for a brief period. I think he was still going back and forth to Georgia. But Orton Jr. was a mainstay. And he was uh, the Florida champion and then part of the Florida tag team champions. These two put on a match, Jeff. This is, in my opinion, this was at the peak of their careers, and it was a fucking clinic. I remember, and I was, what, 13 years old? I remember sitting there going, this is unbelievable. These two guys who were super close, super great friends at this stage put on a match that was just head and shoulders above anything I think I'd ever seen before. So those are my three choices. I am going uh, Flair Steamboat in Nashville, uh, May of 1989. Uh, I am going to throw a little curveball here. Sheep herders versus oh. the Fantastics from the Crockett Cup in New Orleans. That would have been, what was it? April of 86, I think. Uh, and then I saw, I want to say this was 82. I saw Flair versus Butch Reed at the West Palm Beach Auditorium. That was really good. Uh, I saw Briscoe's Funks uh, in West Palm Beach. Did a lot of West Palm Beach uh, shows uh, back in 82 and into early three. So uh, 83. So those are the ones I'm going with that especially stick out. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I'll go with those. So the definitely uh, uh, I, I had a chance to see a couple of the Crockett Cups. Uh, went up in... Um, I, I, you know, I've actually never been to a WrestleMania. That's actually pretty amazing. And so Jeff, uh, odds are you will never be at a WrestleMania. No, that's, that's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go to the, uh, the two day event like Joe Dombrowski. So next question, Barry, Sean McIver wants to know, Barry, what is your go-to appetizer at a restaurant? Oh, good. And I like Sean uh, a lot. And I like this question a lot. So for me, you know what I always look for? And I think, Jeff, I think I'm going to the Cheesecake Factory tonight, mm. which exactly the, the lovely Zoe Rose and myself are going to uh, go have dinner. So I always get the avocado egg rolls with cilantro dipping sauce. I'm also a gigantic fan of cheesesteak egg rolls, but you know what my favorite appetizer of all time is? You can, you can almost never get this at a restaurant. Oh, oh please tell us, Barry, where we're oh. waiting with bated breath. Are you, are you on the edge of your seat right now? I really am. Gotcha. Pigs in a blanket. It's that's my fucking that's a good one. favorite of all time. Why don't yeah. restaurants serve pigs in a blanket? I can go to a wedding. You know, we, we have another question further down the list, Barry, as to why restaurants don't serve something. And we're going to get to that. It's what? also question yes so i would say my go-to uh barry I've, I've mentioned on the show before the old potato skins especially with the barbecue uh a drizzle on them the barbecue sauce dribble drizzle that the local place does that's very good uh we also like the uh, the homemade chips uh, now now let me just say when you say chips on the menu don't be giving us out of the bag chips that's not an appetizer you know i want you to friggin make the chips in the kettle in your kitchen Absolutely. then sell them to us yes yeah. And uh, you get some places also serve you a nice soft pretzel berry, you know, for oh, that's that, good. Yeah. I, 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 let me just say, Mrs. Bowder and I, we're not getting anything with the avocado toast. That's all I'm going to say. 
<laughs> so All right. Next question uh, comes from a Scott Keeler. And I'm going to ask you and Lou. Lou, please join us because I'm going to get your opinion on this too. He wanted to know, who is your fa- three favorite Chicago Cubs players? So, Scott, I'm going to go uh, the great Rick Monday. I'm going Ryan Sandberg and maybe Sammy Sosa or Anthony Rizzo. And by the way, I think all Cubs fans can agree that the Cubs need to re-sign friggin' Anthony Rizzo. Give him his damn money, you cheap sons of bitches. So, that being said, Lou, who are your three all-time favorite San Francisco Giants? Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about my Cubs, and then I was going, <laughs> then I was going to name like uh, Cubs who ended up on the Giants. Yeah, so it would have been, uh, yeah, Rick Russell. Uh, <laughs> the rotund one, yes. Yes, uh, old Big Daddy. Okay, if we're talking uh, San Francisco Giants, then we are talking, well, I I am not old enough to have seen Willie Mays play, So, but those who I have seen, that would include uh, Willie Mack, Stretch, Willie McCovey, Hall of Famer, Absolutely. Yep. For all his uh, general assholery and uh, steroidery and nincompoopery, I'd still say Barry Bonds, because if there wasn't a Barry Bonds on the Giants, we wouldn't have the ballpark we're in uh, to this day. And then number three, um, I'd say just for, you know, general flakiness and his uh he 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 his star burned bright and then he burned out tim lincecum okay got the uh got the uh the mullet hanging from the back there i, I didn't know if you're gonna go bomb because he just threw the uh disputed no hitter last week Lou. but uh right good oh, choices he's he's solid too any guy who can ride his own horse in the you know in the victory parade uh, well, is there you go is uh, aces in my book so, so now, Barry, your turn, your top three favorite New York Knicks of all time. Yeah, very, very tough, too. Uh, Charles Oakley, Patrick Ewing, and John Starks. I knew with, that third one was going to be Starks, yes. You did, with, with a, a mention to Anthony Mason, the late Anthony Mason as well. But uh, those are my three. All right. So, uh, okay, next question comes from Rick Springetti, Barry what song makes you cry or, or makes you sad? Oh, I, and I don't know if I get, if sad is the term or do I get, I guess a little bit of sadness, a little bit of melancholy, more introspective. It's uh Jimi Hendrix, the wind cried Mary. Okay. I will come up with two choices. I'm going uh, Eric Clapton tears in heaven. You're singing about your dead son, I, you know, absolutely and along those lines, uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, all of my love, Robert Plant's song about his son that had died. So, uh, you know, you, you certainly can get a little, uh, you know, there's some dust in the air. Uh, I may have just cut onions, uh, something along those lines. Uh, anytime you sing a song about a dead, a dead child, of course, it's going to, going to grab you right by the throat. So next question again, Rick Springetti, apparently getting a little full of themselves asking more than one question, Rick. Eh, okay, buddy. Uh, Barry, tell me the wrestler that at first you did not like, but that you grew to appreciate. Yeah. And this is going to be uh, but y- you'll understand this will be a little odd. I would say it's Barry Wyndham, And a lot of people are going, really? what, what are you talking about? Hold well, on one second on behalf of the group. What? 
What? So, it, Jeff, you were there when Barry Wyndham was first breaking in, and he was uh, probably he was tall as shit. I don't know, whatever Buck height, 80, maybe. Yeah, at, at best, he was uh, he was as painfully thin as Kendall Wyndham, but he did have skills. And uh, with Barry at that time. He was he was getting beat on a daily basis. He wasn't I just didn't see it at the time, though. I saw that something was there, but I I just didn't love the guy. I just didn't see it. Obviously, within two years of of him showing up in Florida, Barry Wyndham was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So uh, it's a it's a convoluted pick in some ways, but I got to go with Wyndham. Well, let me ask you. So when they did the angle with he and Morocco. Sure. It was like 1980, late 79. Were you a fan at that point, or were we I, still talking later? I was. He had already grown up. You got to remember, too, when we first saw Wyndham, he basically just showed up. That you know, He showed up, was working first or second match on the card. There was no sort of fanfare. By the time he was put in the deal with Morocco, he was already getting this, this subtle push as this underdog, the kind of guy that will get his ass beat, and he'll, he'll still continue to come. Much like, uh, I think, what? Tommy Rich. Uh, right, I didn't phrase that correctly, did I? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I certainly didn't phrase that correctly. Uh, but my <laughs> all right, I got to get listeners enjoying a brief chuckle yes. along with Barry. Oh, absolutely. I just have to regain my composure. But it's much like Tommy Rich debuted in Georgia. Uh, I, thought, I thought you were going to tell us Tommy Rich came too. <laughs> he like, did. Got a regular fuck fest game. Yes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so by the I think by the time he was they were pairing him with Morocco, uh, you could already see that this kid really had something. So yeah, I, I'm still going to stick with Wyndham. Okay, next so question. My choice, yes, good question, Rick. My choice, I think I have made it uh, known on this show that when I was writing uh, the Bowdrin and the Booker series, I was not a big Mark Callis fan. Uh, so when he just became so huge. And such a great big star as The Undertaker, you know, obviously, as I said, I was a real genius because I couldn't see that. And and full respect to, to Vince or whoever, Pat Patterson, whoever came up with the idea for the gimmick. Because I got to tell you, Barry, I think when they when I first heard the idea, like, what? He's going to be like, what? Uh, a gravedigger or an undertaker or something like that or a mortician. That's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. And. Hey, man, he fucking took it and ran with it and made tons of fucking money, not only for himself, but for the company. And God bless him for it, you know? So uh, were you a huge uh, Mark Callis fan at the very beginning there, Mayor? Uh, so it, it's kind of the, it, so it's almost the reverse for me. I respect what he's done as The Undertaker. Uh, I believe numerous wrestlers, and I'm talking Ric Flair and a bunch of other people, have called him possibly the greatest of all time that he is uh that he may have the greatest gimmick of all time i do think the quality of matches with the undertaker especially in the last decade uh they just haven't been good now you can you can wrap it up and put a bow on it and try to pretend but they're, they're not as mark Callis, i kind of enjoyed him a little bit more at least the quality of his matches. But again, you, you can't, you can't rock the success off of this because what he's been able to do as the undertaker is really unprecedented on a lot of different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimate respect. Next Floyd McDaniel uh, calling in from Japan. Oh, uh, Bear. Floyd wants to know, uh, Barry, what's your favorite animated films? 
Yeah, so I, I've seen your list, and I'm going to, without mentioning what your titles were, I would 100% agree with both of your choices. I'm going to throw out uh, three others. One would be uh, Finding Nemo, uh, Robots, and Lion King. And Robots was one, not a Disney movie, uh, and I forget who, maybe it's, I forget who it was. But uh, it, uh, the interesting thing about all three of these movies, Robots, Lion King, and Finding Nemo, it's about a son's relationship with his father. And we, as we know with Disney, a lot of the movies were spent like that. You know, it, there's it, it's such a common denominator. Uh, Lion King will always remain because Lion King came out shortly after my father passed away. And it was very difficult for me uh, to go to the movie theater and see Lion King because I would usually end up crying. And a lot of it was because I miss my dad, obviously. Yeah, so. sure, yeah. Yeah, but robots I saw with my son, and that's it, there was a different perspective because at that point, my father long since passed, but at the same time, I now have a son. And, uh, you know, it just, I, I think I was crying in that movie too for different reasons, but I do love all three of those movies. So here's what I came up with, uh, Barry, on um, my favorite animated films uh, Up. With uh, you yeah, know, hundred uh, percent Pixar, 100%. great, great film. Uh, Toy Story, and you really could go any of the Toy Story movies; they were all great. But the original was so just incredible. Here's one a lot of people have forgotten about, Barry: The Iron Giant. That was a a great animated film. Uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse, uh, Shrek, uh, The Lion King. You mentioned. Uh, gotta give a couple three shout outs for uh, people that I know and love and care about. Uh, my daughter Kelly. The Nightmare Before uh, Before Christmas. She watches that movie religiously uh, come fall time. Uh, her, my son-in-law, Brandon, huge fan of Batman Killing Joke, uh, where I think Mark Hamill plays the uh, the voice of the Joker. That's right. And That's right. Uh, Brandon says he's the greatest Joker of all time in that particular role. Also, want to mention our good friend Johnny Hitch. Uh, basically on the news recently in Greensboro. I don't know if you saw that post, Barry. But John, when he was on this show, I asked him what his favorite uh, uh, animated film of all time. John said The Incredibles. So I wanted to mention uh, Johnny Hitch's choice, too. So next question from Randy Rusk. Barry, who's the king of cool? Is it James Dean or Steve McQueen? I have a very definite answer here, Barry. Oh, I, I have such a death. It's Steve McQueen without even. Steve McQueen. Exactly. James, James Dean, Dean poser, poser. It was a lot of it was fake. Uh, you know, with Steve McQueen, he legit was a fucking badass. This guy was legit cool, and I always felt that James Dean it was more of a uh, he was more of a poser. I, yes, for me, no contest on yes. that. One, really. Yes, yeah. watch a little thing called Bullet, and then tell me who the king of fucking cool <laughs> ah, is. There you man. go. All right. So next question uh, uh, from Harold Strassler. Shockingly, Barry, not a cars related question. What? He wants to know, Barry, what was your all-time favorite CWF fan fest and who was your favorite guest? Oh, this is, I mean, you're asking me, what, this is Sophie's fucking choice. Choose between your children, Barry. Exactly. Who do I, uh, so I want to, I'm tempted to say the first one because it was all so new and it was all a surprise and I didn't know what to expect. And at the end of the day, I remember saying I'll never do another fucking fan fest prior because of the headaches. And then the, within a half an hour of it being over, I'm on the phone with Penzer going, when are we doing the next one? You know? So, uh, so I would say that I think if I was to look at all six of them, I think number five with Ricky steamboat. Yeah. Was, good choice. Yeah. That yeah, was very good. 
it was such a revelation. Everybody knows Ricky Steamboat. He's a, the darling of, of hardcore fans. And yet, we, you know, I, I think one of his weakest links of Steamboat has been his promo ability. And then all of a sudden, Ricky Steamboat captivates and holds an audience in the palm of his hand for two hours. And he's literally one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. That was a real revelation for me. So I will say number five with Ricky Steamboat. But again, it's a Sophie's choice. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, is it, it calls to mind, you know, when you talk about Steamboat, that his weakness was promos and then he goes and talks for two hours. You know, we used to hear stories about how Brad Armstrong uh, in the back uh, with the boys was a great storyteller, great yeah. ribber, would keep the guys laughing all the time. And then for whatever reason, when that light came on, he just couldn't convey it to the audience. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely see that. Uh, so I would say that I think you're right on with the, uh, the Ricky Steamboat Fan Fest. My favorite guest, uh, without a question, though, is Jody Hamilton because, you know, somebody asked, what was there a guest that you were sort of a little bit in awe of? And for me, Jody Hamilton was at the very first card I ever went to and quite possibly is the only one still alive from that particular card at the Savannah Civic Center. And to get a chance to sit down, because after we had had the Fan Fest and we're talking and stuff like that, I actually got a chance to sit down for about 15 minutes and just have a conversation with them. And, you know, it's like talking to somebody that was like a hero of your past. And, you know, I like to think I don't get starstruck uh, very often, but uh, I was kind of starstruck talking to Jody Hamilton, you know. And I, I think the fact that uh, it was the first one uh, might have had something to do with it also. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I would say uh, the, the Steamboat Fan Fest will be my favorite. Uh, and uh, sitting and talking with Jody Hamilton was uh, – Definitely my favorite guest. And and that's taken nothing away from Steamboat and every other guy. Every guest we've had there, Barry, has really been pretty super. Um, next question. Dustin Whitaker wants to know, Barry, who is your all-time most underrated tag team from the territories? And who is your most overrated tag team from the territory years? Yeah, absolutely, too. So I would say underrated. Uh, let, let's do the Florida stuff first. Uh there was a period beginning in 1977 where Ivan Koloff and Pat Patterson formed a tag team and were Florida tag team champions. They were phenomenal. That then morphed into Patterson turned babyface, left the state. Koloff then formed a team with Mr. Saido, and they were Florida tag team champions. And then Ivan Koloff left, and Mr. Saido formed a tag team with Mr. Sato, who was the great Kabuki. And they were Florida tag team champions. And it was that whole run right there of those guys that really outside of Florida, these guys never worked anywhere else. They were incredible. We also had a tag team that came in in 1975 underneath masks. And it was Jerry Lawler and Don Green. And they were called the mass superstars. And I was completely taken with these guys because they were working a completely different style that we were used to in Florida. And I just thought it was great. The other one, and it's somebody that we've raved about numerous times, uh, Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry. I mean, I saw them in Knoxville in 78. They were amazing. They could have gone anywhere. They could have worked any territory. Uh, and they would have been better than 99.9% of the other tag teams out there. Uh, as far as overrated, there are quite a few. I would say the Valiant Brothers. The Valiant Brothers, to me, were were just horrific uh, in the ring. <laughs> they, they were terrible. They were a promo. Uh, the, I liked the gimmick. But the quality of matches, the Valiant Brothers just did not, I don't know, it just wasn't what I was used to. I thought they were absolutely terrible. 
Okay, so I am going to go. I, I'm going to agree with you, Barry, on the uh, the Condry and Hickerson team. Uh, that's why I wrote down the other one. Condry and Dave Schultz were also a great yes. team. That late '70s in Memphis, there were tons of great tag teams. And Memphis in the early '80s too. All those, you know, Bobby Eaton and Coco Ware. Uh, you know that that people just don't remember and think about. There were so many absolutely stellar tag teams working that area over like about a five or 10 year window. Uh, So now I'm going to surprise some people with overrated tag teams. I always thought that Ron Bass and black Bart weren't that big a deal. Uh, I just, I I never got what, and you know, I've talked to Ron before uh, at one of the dinners and he was a super, super great guy. I know his son uh, is in, uh, I don't know if he's in our group. I know he's in the CWF group, Barry, uh, but, uh, and you know, I didn't have a problem with it. Ron as a single, but I just was never into the, the, the Ron and black Bart tag team also very overrated to me, just because again, you talked about the legacy of great tag teams in Florida. And when the Zambui express came to Florida to me, I, I like Ray candy. He was, he was, I saw him very early in my, uh, in my career as a wrestling fan, uh, when he was just a candy man and, uh, Leroy Brown was a, was a kind of a really good gimmick in the late seventies and stuff like that. But by the time they got together as a tag team, there was nothing wrong with the gimmick, but I thought they were both kind of slow and lumbering and stuff like that. And uh, I just didn't dig them as a tag team. What do you think? Well, so Jeff, you're hundred percent correct. Check. Uh, so Ray Candy, I first off as a human being, Ray Candy ranks up as one of the finest human beings I probably have ever met. What a just tremendous guy! I could sit here and talk for. I have written one letter to the Observer in thirty years, and it was a, about Ray Candy's passing uh, because that's how much I thought of him as a human being. Uh, but you're right, Ray Candy, especially at that stage, he. You know, he had so many issues with his ankles and his knees. He was overweight. Uh, He couldn't move around. And Leroy Brown also, God rest his soul, he was essentially lazy. I mean, Leroy Brown would do whatever, you know, the minimum of what he had to do. So their quality of matches weren't great, but I did love the gimmick because I thought it was unique. And the truth was at that stage in Florida, you know, it, it was what it was. We, we weren't, you know, we, we were already, we were a second tier territory at that point. Uh, but both guys had tremendous size. And I think that's what a lot of the gimmick was supposed to be based off of, but they weren't having great matches. The highlight of the Zambui express for me will always be that television match with, uh, dusty and blackjack or the brawl where they're like brawling out by the garbage dumpsters on the side of the building in the sportatorium. I was like, this is great. Why don't they do this more often? But yeah, they were, they were really, really limited at that stage. Okay. Next question from Ron Wayne, Ron, I want to tell you, my man, this is a great, compelling question. Barry Rose, who you picking strictly stand up Rodney Dangerfield or Don Rickles? So there is no wrong answer on this one. That's a hundred percent for sure. Uh, and I've changed my mind four times based off of strictly stand up. I'm going to say Rickles, but I, I still have so much love for Rodney. It's, you know, he transcends all of it in my eyes, but I think what Don Rickles was doing is at a different level than what anybody else at that stage was doing. Well, and you think about the fact that he was basically eviscerating everyone in the crowd. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, uh, you know, Italian, Jewish, Anglo, Hispanic, whatever. He would pick on everybody 
and the people loved that he did it. There were people that were like, oh, God, I hope he rips me. They were looking forward to being shredded by the guy. And that's just that's an art form, yep. you know, for him to be able to do that. And, you know, Rodney, of course, it, it, I can sit and watch the uh, clips on YouTube of Rodney on the Carson show or or Rodney doing stand up, you know, infinitum just because he's so awesome. So, you know, if I'm handed two tickets and, oh, there's two comedy clubs and they're right next door to one another. And one's got Rodney and one's got Rickles. Rickles. Uh, Jeff, which one are you going to? I'm going Rickles. I, I've seen Rickles. I saw him right near the end of his life at the uh, the Hard Rock Casino in, uh, in South Florida. And it was just an amazing, amazing show. Maybe, maybe that means I should take Rodney because I've never seen him, whereas I saw Rickles. But that show was just so freaking epic. So, uh, Ron, great, great question. I'm even thinking, I think I'm going to put this up as a poll question. It's such a good question. Uh, but yeah, just, uh, and, and I know we got people in the group that, that love Rodney and deservedly so, but I, I don't know whether or not enough people really appreciate, uh, God, go, go watch those Dean Martin roast. And when Rickles got up, I mean, there were, it was a, uh, a thing that was loaded with entertainers, with comedians, and they would all stop to watch Rickles work. And, the, uh, you remember the story he told about Sinatra? What, no, what was that? So this is like one of the greatest stories ever. Sinatra completely at the zenith of his career. Uh, yeah, well, he was older, but he was still just, uh, I mean, I can't even begin to describe to people how big Frank Sinatra was. Sure. So Sinatra comes on the tonight show and he's telling Johnny Carson, the story about, you know, he had met Don and Don used to o open up for Sinatra. I think, uh, when he would do shows and, you know, Don was still kind of a struggling comedian at the time. But, uh, you know, he was starting – his name was getting out there. and uh, But this was before he did, like, Kelly's Heroes and that kind of stuff. So uh, apparently Don was going on a date. I don't know if it was with the woman that became his wife or not. But uh, so he wanted to impress her. So he goes up to Sinatra and he says, uh, hey, Frank, can you do me a big favor? Can you just come over and uh, say hello to me while I'm having dinner? You know, it'll mean a lot. And the girl will be really impressed that I know Frank Sinatra. It's like, yeah, sure, Don, no problem. So Don says, uh, you know, a little while goes by, he looks over and he sees Don at the table with the young lady and they're having dinner and stuff. So Frank goes over and he says, oh, Don, how you doing? It's nice to see you. And he says, Rickle turns around and looks at him and goes, what's the matter with you, Frank? Can't you see I'm having dinner here? Get out of here. <laughs> and it was, oh man, it was a great story. So uh, and that clip's out there for you, uh, those of you that are looking for it. So next question, again, great question, Ron. Appreciate it, buddy. Uh, the next question, David Edelman. Oh, Lou, it's time for you to join us again because David's got a question for you. He wants to know, Lou Kippelman, is that you doing the voiceovers on those Joe Namath commercials? I'm going to assume that David is talking about the the Joe Namath for Medicare. Some Yes, and yeah. it sounds just like you. i got to be honest with you. You know, it's I, I wish I could claim a, a VO credit on that, but alas, no. Now I'm going to have to, like, turn on Judge Judy and try to find that commercial. <laughs> and then when you do, you're going to go, son of a bitch, I should be getting residuals for this. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. I wish, but no, it's a uh, Lou Kippelman tribute artist. <laughs> well, they're everywhere, truly. Yeah. So next question, Justin Pratt wants to know, Barry, if you were born in a different part of the country, would your view of wrestling be different? So the easy answer on this one is yes. And and so just to clarify, if you were born in a different part of the country and you grew up watching a territory, uh, would your view be that, that's what, that's what my assumption of what he meant. I would say absolutely. And we talk about this. I don't think you can help but be skewed, you know? And yeah, exactly. It would be. So if you grew up watching, you know, there are people that grew up 
these are we're talking intelligent people that are knowledgeable that grew up watching the WWE and they'll rave about the Valiant Brothers and what the Valiant <laughs> Brothers meant. So at Witchies, right? <laughs> exactly. Was any of Witchies? So it, it, you know, again, I I absolutely think that if you grow up and you watch a certain product, you're more inclined to view that product as some of the best, and and you're always going to have fond memories as you get older, especially of your childhood. Uh, so I I would say the the short answer is yes. No, I, and you know, you talk to somebody that grew up in the AWA that, you know, yep. they were uh, captivated by the AWA storylines and, and the wrestlers, uh, our friend, Kevin Orcutt out in Portland, uh, nothing could top Oregon wrestling and, and all those guys, because that's what he grew up with. I, I completely understand that. And, uh, anybody else too, the, you know, my, my friends, uh, Jeff and David Steele grew up with, and JD McKay grew up watching mid South wrestling. So of course that's their favorite, just like Hitch and, and Bruce and Oban. And by the way, Barry, let me just give a quick shout out to our friend Oban Johnson. Still struggling, still battling with that cancer, my man. You kicked that fucking cancer right in the ass. We're thinking of you, Oban. Uh, but they all grew up uh, watching uh, Mid Atlantic wrestling, and that's their go to source for uh, for great wrestling. I completely get that. So I, I think you're absolutely right, Barry. Barry, you're 100% right. Check. Wow. And, and that it can't help but change your outlook. Because, you know, maybe all of a sudden Florida wrestling isn't the hot shot deal that everyone thinks it is. You know, if you grew up watching Memphis wrestling, maybe that's why you think Lance is better than Gordon or that, you know, uh, Boyd Pierce. If you grew up in, you know, uh, in Mid-South, Boyd Pierce is the greatest because that's who I grew up watching. You can't help but have those feelings. So I completely understand that. Next question, Barry, comes from Brandon Stevenson. Barry, what is your favorite Japanese match ever? And boy, is that hard because, uh, you know, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands that you can choose from. So for me, it's probably always going to go back to the, uh, the, the junior heavyweights and, uh, whether you go back to, uh, you know, Mark rollerball Rocco, uh, you might go to Eddie Guerrero, possibly Chris Benoit, uh, or Jushin Thunder Liger, but there was a match and I want to say it was in 1994. It was the best of the super junior heavyweights. And it was uh, Jushin Liger versus the great Sasuke. And do you remember this match, Jeff? I believe I do, yes. Yeah, it was pretty fucking unbelievable. And I, I could watch these guys. And I love the all-Japan style, too. I love the, you know, the hard-hitting. Uh, King's Road. King's Road. Just lay a man and just beat the shit. But what, what a lot of these junior heavyweights were doing, we really had never seen anything ever like this before. And I was so taken with it. So that, that's my pick. But, you know, ask me in a week. I'm sure I could change. Well, one of the things, uh, just to uh, further your comment, on the New Japan, the Super J-Cup and stuff is – they would bring in guys who had so, you know, they would have guys from England, like you said, yes. uh, Rollerbar Rocco. Uh, you would have guys like Dynamite and Davy Boy. And then they would bring in the Mexican guys, too. And the Mexican guys would use their own. I'm not talking Eddie. I'm talking guys that worked in Mexico. Like Grand really Hamada. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you'd have the Japanese guys. And then they'd throw in an American guy or two. So you had all these really contrasting styles that somehow was like this melting pot. And they all worked. Their own, you know, their styles, and it was just absolute magic. So, yeah, that's a that's a good strong uh, choice there, Barry. I'm gonna say that uh, remembering back to my uh, my top 100 list and stuff like that, I remember stuff like uh, the uh, the 10 woman uh, Japanese uh, elimination tag match that I saw live with Meltzer, uh, the uh, the match with uh, Fujinami and Maeda that ended with the uh, the kick to the face that uh, absolutely cut uh, or accidentally cut. 
Fujinami in the forehead and they had to stop the match. That was unbelievable. The uh, the matches with uh, Choshu and uh, and Yatsu versus uh, Suruta and Tenru. And then going into the next decade, you know, your your Tiger Mask versus Kawada that we reviewed recently and and all that Kings Road stuff, the the six man tag that we reviewed, you know, the all those are uh, have a place there and and so uh you know uh, oh and the one I didn't mention was uh New versus Now which was not only exciting uh, from August of 1987, a new Japan match. Uh, but it had the, the crowd just so emotionally involved, uh, rooting for the young guys to beat the older guys. But of course they didn't want to call it the new, uh, the young guys versus the older guys. They want to call it new versus now. So, uh, but yeah, any of those matches on a given day, uh, you know, today I could say new versus now. I wake up tomorrow and I'll say, ah, no, no, no. It's probably the uh, the match with Masawa versus Kawada. And then uh, the next day I'll wake up and it'll be a, a woman's match. You know, the, the match we just watched recently with Manami Toyota versus uh, Toshio Yamada. That was a fantastic match, too. And by the way, I was stupid enough to post the link to the wrong match. So sorry about that. Uh, next question uh, comes from Kelly Morrison. Oh, my sister-in-law, Barry. Barry, if you could have one piece of wrestling memorabilia on display in your home what would it be oh that's and i know you've got you've got some good memorabilia so let's maybe take it uh things that you don't have in your possession that you'd like to have oh yeah absolutely too uh so i i think if i if there was one piece of memorabilia that i want it goes back uh to the angle between paul jones and buddy colt where paul jones threw the florida title off of the Gandhi bridge in Tampa. And, uh, the, I don't, you know, there's been speculation that maybe somebody got in a boat and got it. You're not getting it. If that thing's thrown off the Gandhi bridge, there's nobody down there diving and getting that belt. So that belt, as far as we know, is still down at the bottom of, uh, of the, uh, of, I guess it's the bay. I don't know what it is, but, uh, that, that, that to me, I would have to be cleaned up Jeff. Cause it's, uh, approaching, <laughs> yeah, 48 years being in the ocean, in ocean water. So uh, it'll have to be cleaned up a little bit, but you know what? I would so, invest. So, so let me ask you this question because I'm not familiar with that, that area, and I know you are much more familiar with the area. The Gandhi Bridge, does it go over like the actual bay, the actual ocean? Is it a river or what? It's going over, I'm guessing, an inlet or a bay that is obviously connected to the ocean. Okay. Uh, but in knowing how the currents work there also, there, you know, unless somebody went out a day or two later. But again, the bridge is going to see so much traffic with boats going underneath it. There's nobody that could go fucking scuba diving right there. It's just not going to happen. So uh, I truly believe that it still exists somewhere. I mean, certainly almost 50 years later, currents have taken it, moved it. Who knows? But uh, yeah, it's it just there's just there's just no way. Yeah, I would say when I first saw this question, I was thinking, you know, uh, I, I mentioned before our friend John Hitchcock. John has a number of old uh, Mid-Atlantic posters going back to the uh, like the early 70s, I think. Just some unbelievable cards uh, that they did. And, and uh, I would like to have something like that get it framed or maybe like an old uh, title belt. Uh, I'm not one of these people that's going to want, I, I mean, I know people that have like a hundred belts. Uh, I don't want a hundred. I just like what one or two. And uh, I'm going to get into which one or two, because that question comes up in a little bit about what our favorite belts are. So I'll answer it at that point. So Lou, join us because you are a, a good TV trivia guy. So I'm going to see if I can stump you on this one. Mm. Lou, do you remember what was the name of Lenny and Squiggy's band on Laverne and Shirley? I want to say the Squigtones. Correct. Boom. Boom. All right. 
from the College of Knowledge, my friend. And that question, I did not write down who wrote that question. So I apologize for that. But that, that I thought that was a funny one. And I, I immediately said, oh, my God, it's the squig tones. Let's see if Lou knows that. And so you uh, made us proud, Lou. Thank oh, you. thank you. So the next question, Mark Hurtwick. I, I've heard of him. He may be a moderator. So he wants to know, Barry, what movies are you ashamed to announce to the crowd that you have not yet seen? Yeah, so this was one of those questions, Jeff, that I don't have an answer for. I don't know. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. So if you if you start talking, you know, and Lou, Lou certainly could join us, but if you guys start talking about films, and, and I might possibly agree, but off the top of my head, it's uh, there's a similar question that is asked later on, and it's the same thing. It's a different subject, but it's almost the same thing. I don't, you know, it's I'm at that stage of my life where. You know, if I wanted to see a movie, I'm going to fucking watch it. Like, I don't, you know, well, so. no, it, you know, it, it's not so much that, that I'd have more. It just, <laughs> for whatever reason, time slips away. You don't get a chance. Right. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie now. Oh, wait a minute. Something else comes up, you know, yada, yada. So I will give you four. I have never seen black Panther. Uh, no particular reason why. I just have never got around to seeing it. From what I understand, it's one of the best Marvel films or Marvel universe films ever. And so I'm sure I will get around to watching it. Uh, so, uh, also Marley and me, Barry, you know, why I haven't watched Marley and me. Yeah. And you'll never watch Marley yeah. and me based. And on it's supposed you know, it's a, a great story about a guy and his dog. And, uh, you know, it's a, a very cute film, but of course we know what the ending is. So I don't ever yes. want to say So the last two, Barry, I'm going to mention because there is a really underrated genre of films that you and I, we both, I know have kind of tipped our or dipped our toe in the proverbial water here and that is korean films and there are some amazing films coming out of korea i have never seen parasite or barry i have never seen old boy which i know that that oh, you love that. absolutely and, you know we, we actually reviewed train to busan which was an incredible film and i think the sequel is out now and i gotta get around to watching the sequel too bear yeah, somebody mentioned the sequel. I, I was in our group just the other day. Parasite was fantastic. And Parasite, the beauty of Parasite to me, a, a, a movie that I saw in the Cinerama Dome, uh, which now obviously is closed in Los Angeles, one of the last movies I saw before the pandemic hit. Fantastic film. And what I liked about Parasite was I had no idea what was going to happen. I thought it was going to be a horror movie. I thought parasites are in a body. Some shit goes down. I don't know. I was completely wrong, but a fantastic movie. And if I'm correct, it won Best Oscar. Uh, I believe it did, yeah. Yeah, for the year. Uh, and old boy, Jeff, I mean, I old boy to me was life-changing. I saw Old Boy when I was living in Orlando. I came up to Pennsylvania with my family for a week, and then I went off to New York City for two days to meet up with friends. And one of the things I did was see Old Boy, and I walked out of the theater, and I was like, "It was it Old Boy to me." And I'm I'm sure I've said this before. It's a almost a Korean version of a of a Quentin Tarantino movie. It is a roller coaster. There are moments you're going to go, holy fucking shit. I can't believe this just happened. Uh, highly recommend it. And Jeff, I do have it on DVD if you want it. Okay. Thank you, sir. So next, Andrew Betts wants to know, Barry, what is your go-to chain restaurant? Sure. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, Cheesecake Factory tonight. Last night was Mission Barbecue. Uh, and I guess another chain that I like a lot is the Bonefish Grill. 
Yeah. Uh, Cheesecake Factory, a favorite of uh, the beloved Mrs. Bowdrin and I. Uh, Barry, I recommend the uh, the gumbo. Uh, very, very tasty uh, over a nice right. uh, plate of white rice. Uh, very good stuff. Also, uh, Mrs. Bowdrin and I, fan of Longhorn. Uh, you know, the thing is, a question comes up later in the Q&A about uh, what's your favorite type of restaurant. And I started thinking, you know, one thing since we moved up here, uh, yay, a year and a half ago, we have yet to find a really good Chinese restaurant in this area. That's troubling, Barry. It's troubling. Well, it to your, I mean, so Andrew Zimmern was canceled about uh, two years ago when he said there's a lot of shitty Chinese restaurants out there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, things probably you shouldn't say. Well, but let's be honest. Where I don't understand where he's so off on that because there really are a lot of shitty Chinese restaurants out there. There's so much bad Chinese food that when you get good Chinese food, you've got to fucking lovingly embrace the restaurant and visit it to make sure that it stays open in business. And we had a place in. In, uh, in the suburbs of PA called Mandarin Garden. Uh, and they're all a garden in some, you know, for some reason, they're all garden. But uh, Mandarin Garden was fantastic. They they sold the property. It's now an apartment complex. They raised it and put up this beautiful new building. Uh, and now I go to a place called Jade Garden, uh, where the food is very good. That being said, you know, Jade Garden isn't as good as Mandarin was. Getting good Chinese, Jeff, it's like, like a fucking puzzle it's almost well, impossible. you know now, unless now, you're now, if you live in san francisco oh, yeah. yeah there's like four on every block so uh the the thing is I, I should mention i said there's none around here there actually is right next door to our Publix uh that we go to we started noticing like when we first moved we like wait man this one restaurant is it got a stream of takeout always going and people you know the like the one side of the complex is always full from people going into this restaurant called rice and we went in there and I said, wow, this is the best Chinese we've had since we've been here. The only problem, Barry, pricier than almost 95% of the other Chinese places. So it's like there's sometimes you're like, uh, give me the Chinese food, give it to me dirt cheap. And then there's time when you're willing to spend a little bit more for a really good Chinese place. Yeah. And to that end, Chinese is one. It's kind of like seafood to me. I, I'm OK paying as much as you want when it comes to seafood, sure. because when you get bad seafood, it's and Chinese is kind of the same because, you know, if you I don't know what you normally get, but let, let's take like General Tso's chicken, which seems to be a family favorite. And you go to some Chinese restaurants and it's either all breading or it's dark meat and gristle. And, you know, it's just it's gross. And then you go to a good place and then maybe they're using a higher quality chicken and it's not as much breading, but it's more of the sauce and the flavor. So I am willing to pay more for good Chinese, Jeff. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things uh, I used to love to get sweet and sour shrimp. And sure. now it, so many of the places we get it from, it's like you start cutting through the breading and there's like this little. Uh, it's not the proverbial jumbo shrimp, if you get my meaning. You're like, really? There's like all this breading and, oh, there's the little uh, shrimp that apparently was taken from its mother because it hasn't fully formed yet. <laughs> but anyway, yes, so. exactly. All right, our next question. Antonio Fido, official friend of the show. His father, kind of sketchy, but that's another story, Barry. Antonio wants to know, Barry, your T-shirts, are they plain or do you have a logo on most of yours? Oh, come on now. I, I think I've got one. I think we know the answer to this question. Yeah, you already know it. I've got one plain T-shirt, and I've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 logoed shirts. So uh, I am a big T-shirt collector. I try to get them from restaurants wherever I go. So if I'm, you know, if I'm on vacation somewhere uh, and I hit a restaurant and I enjoy it, I always look to buy a T-shirt from there. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of the uh, the logos too. I'm currently wearing the Barry. You fan of the Life is Good T-shirts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's what I'm wearing now. So, so yes, Antonio, I would say both of us big fan of the logos on our T-shirt. Next, Steve. I'm going to butcher your name. I'll try not to. Steve Polkinghorn. Uh, favorite cuisine, Barry? Uh, Italian. Uh, what, what do you got uh, as an example? What ethnic food is your favorite? That that's a great fucking last name, by the way. Yes, Polkinghorn. Uh, so it changes all the time, and I I know that we've answered this question before. So currently, uh, based off of the company I'm keeping lately, uh, it's Indian. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's Indian food. Pasta. Uh, I, th- I thought it was pasta, Barry. No, pasta is when it's in house. But oh, okay, uh, thank as you. far yeah, as far as ordering, uh, it does appear to be Indian. Indian is now on my radar for probably three dinners per week. But I gotta tell you, I'm fucking fully jumping in. And uh uh a couple of nights ago I had uh, lamb vindaloo and Oh man, was it good! My mouth is watering right now. This lamb with Vindaloo was through the roof, Jeff. Uh, were you Were you with Zoe? No, I'll be oh. with Zoe tonight and tomorrow night. But no, I was not with Zoe that night. Must have been a misunderstanding on my part. So I'm going uh, Italian is my personal fave. Uh, Mrs. Baldwin, huge Mexican uh, cuisine fan. Anytime I say, uh, "Where do you want to go to dinner tonight? You want to go for the Italian place or you want to go Mexican?" She like looks at me and rolls the eyes. She goes, well, "What do you think I'm going to say? It's always going to be Mexican." She loves the Mexican. We also like a uh, barbecue and again uh, the search for the uh, competent Chinese place. So next question. Question, uh, Lou, can you join us again? David White has a question for Lou. Lou, he says, have you ever done stand-up? Well, a number of years ago. I, I got to say it's probably a decade ago at least now. Was it successful? Uh, Semi-sort uh, in the fact that I put together, as they call it in the biz, a solid type five. And I did uh, a few open mics. Ooh, speaking the uh, the business lingo there. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I a, a really good friend of mine actually became a stand up comic around the same time, and I saw how much friggin' hard work and dues paying uh, he had to go through to become a successful comic. And I just looked at it and said, mm, "No thanks." So, Were you heckled? No, thank God. Oh. That's the thing. I never got heckled, and I don't think I ever really uh, bombed, per se. All righty. So, okay, next question from Lawrence William Holt. Barry, what are your three favorite wrestling belts? Uh, I don't know that I have three. I, I'm not a belt guy uh, at all. I, if I was going to choose wrestling belts, it's going to go back to the old Florida territory uh, on belts that I would have seen that were defended on a weekly and nightly basis in the state. But I'm not one of these guys. I can tell you the one belt that I I've always hated is the, the North American title, the, the 80 pound. Oh, uh, I, that's <laughs> is that, was that one of your favorites. That's one of the ones I was going to say that I love. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it was ridiculous in the fact that it was like, you know, it looks like it's about six feet by six feet. It's just <laughs> just a bizarre looking belt. It, that didn't make any sense to me. But yeah, I'm not I'm not really a belt guy. So I was going to say uh, all mine are uh, kind of old school, too. I loved 
the belt that Bruno had, uh, I want to say late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I thought that was a really good-looking belt. The, the Dory Funk Jr. version of the NWA world title, uh, I like that much better than the one that, uh, that Jack and Harley uh, wore and, and Terry wore. Uh, also, uh, the um, the AWA title, which, as Barry uh, alluded to, is another 80-pound belt. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 of course, the uh, North American belt, too. So, And uh, I actually think I know who has the North American belt. Uh, if I'm not, I'm not hundred percent positive, but I think I do. And matter of fact, Barry, I think he's a member of our group, but anyway, so the original one. So the next question, Barry, oh, Barry, it's from our old friend, John Lee from where Wales, Wales, my friend, John wants to know, would you do an audio book? Would I do an audio? Is there, is there, are there people clamoring for me to do an audio book? Well, I will say, uh, for, first of all, I would love to do an audio book, especially yes. my, uh, my two books. I, I've been wanting this. So, uh, any <clears throat> publishers out there that are looking for a fine audio book, uh, I'm happy to do that. So next question from Tim Graff. Barry, what is your favorite kind of nut? Ooh. I think I'm going to go with the old cashew, lightly salted, but lightly, but I, I, I like the texture and the taste of a nice cashew. Okay. I'm going cashew. I like an, an, a nice honey roasted uh, peanut too, Barry. Gotcha. And, and, and of course, final, finally, a, any wrestling fan that, uh, when you ask them what their favorite kind of nut is, of course, is going to say the beetle nut, but that goes without saying, but boom, boom, saying no reaction from you, Barry. Thank you so no, much. No, no, no. You were getting it. Yeah, yeah. I went boom. Yeah. MD Tyler wants to know next, Barry, what are your top three songs that you love, but do not want people knowing that you love? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. Most of the music I listen to is probably very embarrassing on every level. Uh, so it, why don't we remove, you know, the new wave and punk stuff that I would have listened to, but, uh, I like Miley Cyrus and it's not, you know, really? I, yeah. And it's not, I'm not, uh, it's, it's not where I'm going to search her out on the dial, but God forbid, you know, party in the USA comes on, I'm ready to get my groove on, you know? So, uh, I like Barry, that. Barry, I, I do want to say at this point, sure. uh, you're too old to say, I'm going <laughs> to get my groove on. Cause right now there's somebody listening to the show going, look at old man. What are you talking about? You've never seen an almost 58 year old man <laughs> about to get his groove on. You may want to strap in for this one. Uh, you know what other song I like that this yes. probably falls into it. Toy soldiers by Martika. Ooh, Remember that song? Classic. Yes, they do. Oh yeah. I okay. loved her. And I love that song. Debbie Gibson too. That was another one. I liked all those cute eighties girls. Uh, Tiffany. I, I liked it. Yeah, that was the only one I wasn't that crazy about. I think we're alone now, Tiffany. Yeah, the rest I like. Okay, so I am going. Uh, I'm going to offer up three. Uh, first, a, a standard by this point, Barry. Uh, uh, Abba, a uh, dancing queen. I, I'm okay. sorry, I, I like this. Oh, one. absolutely. Okay. Uh, next, from boy meets girl, it's waiting for a star. Oh, I hate that fucking song. Thank you. And finally, from the group of the boy band from England. Uh, so John Lee's going to go. Hey, there's motherfuckers. Uh, uh, yes, it's take that song. Wants you back. Robbie Williams was the lead singer for, uh, for take that big controversy with the split. I'm sure we'll get a report from John Lee on that, but, uh, are you familiar with that song bear? I don't think I am actually. Do you want to, you want to give me a little bit of it or uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is not, that is not Tina Turner. We're not going to get two weeks in a row of Bowdrin singing. So, right. uh, so the next song, uh, uh, next, uh, question, Jason D'Agostino. 
Very good question. Shane Douglas, underrated, overrated, or correctly rated? That is a, and here's a question that this is one that I thought about, and I, I changed my answer uh, a couple of times. I don't think he's underrated. Uh, I think he is probably correctly rated on a lot of levels. I, that's, that's probably where I'm going to go with that. I'll go with correctly rated. Well, it's interesting because I think the answer is every one of your choices because I think there was a time uh, in the late 80s when he was probably underrated. Then uh, during his ECW uh, heyday, I think he may have been overrated. Yes. um, Because, you know, let's be honest, the ECW maniacs, they like, you know, everybody that ever worked a card for ECW somehow has been then turned into a wrestling god. Uh, And now I think at this point, uh, upon reflection, I think we can appreciate uh, some of the stuff he did for ECW, some of the stuff he did, uh, you know, uh, in his days as a, a tag team uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the Johnny Ace, uh, the dynamic dudes. And what was the, because uh, he was in, uh, God, now I'm drawing a blank on the match. It was in New Orleans. It was one of my top one. Oh, that's one of my favorite, my favorite matches of all times, the battle for New Orleans. Yes. But what yeah. happened was Shane was in like five minutes and then got yes. knocked out. And I think it was. Was it Chris Adams that came down and, and finished out the match? No, it was Sting. It Sting, was a okay. newly turned baby faced. This was the greatest fucking match ever. I absolutely loved it. And this was this was essentially the first concession stand brawl in many years uh, because they brawled. But I think Shane Douglas was handy was uh, handcuffed somewhere, and Sting, who had just turned baby face, came down, and it was Sting and Chris Adams, and was it Rick Eddie Stein? and Terry? Eddie and Terry, that's right. Eddie and Terry, yes. So I'll tell you a funny story about uh, Matt. That was great. This is 180 plus episodes ago, but I still remember this. So I think the week that I reviewed this match, John Hitchcock was was guest hosting. So it was one of the first three episodes. Oh. And so when it came time to the match, I said, John, have you had a chance to watch this match? And he goes, nope. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't talk about the match by myself. So you know what? I think we might have to review that match. The Battle of New Orleans, uh, that tag match, uh, in uh, in a few weeks uh, after we get a, a couple of moments, and and go back and take a look, see what you thought about. You know, obviously you said you loved it, but you know, upon reflection, as we look back some uh, 30, 35 years or whatever, and and see what we think about that match now. So, because it's been a, a hot tick since we uh, had a chance to look at that match. What do you think? Yeah, and I I can tell you that the next time you ask me, have we reviewed this match? I'm going to go, nope, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> I think that's a great response. Lou, join us again as Jamie Ward. Jamie, I like this film because of the boob content. Ward wants to know, Lou, tell us your thoughts on Giants manager Gabe Kapler. (laughs) (laughs) Loaded question right there. Yes. Yeah, I sense no ulterior motive in that query. Yeah, I mean, so far the Giants have been kind of performing above expectations. And of course, last season was Gabe Kapler's first season. So I don't really have much to judge him on per se. And I haven't been following that closely, uh, mainly because I've, I I think a COVID shortened season was uh, not one really particularly worth following closely. But I think that we're seeing new faces on the Giants, pretty good bullpen, and, well, the general manager, Farhan Zaidi, is definitely willing to 
make trades at the drop of a hat and bringing on some pretty good players. So as far as Gabe Kapler, I don't know. I'm not big on uh, picking apart managers in-game strategy, but he's he's fine. We'll see if he's a uh, Bruce Bochy, but who knows? I am going to recommend, Barry, at this point, that our executive producer, the great Brian Last, consider having Lou have a, a, a baseball podcast here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Maybe Lou and, and Kevin Sullivan can have a podcast just where they sit and discuss baseball. What do you think, Bear? I, I think that would be absolutely huge. Because uh, what Lou uh, needs is more work. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I work cheap. All I ask for is a cosmic cookie to well, work with Kevin. Go, yeah. So. And chew on the beetle nut, naturally. So yes. stick with us, Lou, because the next question involves uh, both of you. Uh, Brian Huff wants to know, and, and I'm going to discuss my own personal because he asked all three of us, uh, what is the most terrifying real-life situation that you two have been in? Oh, and I saw this, and uh, this is an easy question for me. I was snorkeling with my friend Danny off of Hollywood Beach Probably right off of like Sheridan Street, Hollywood, you know, right there. Got it. Uh, and we were, this would have been 1982 or 83. We were maybe 200 yards offshore. And I turn around and within, I don't know, 10 feet of me is a bull shark. Nice. And, and Dan, I didn't have any, I had a spear gun. And Danny had a knife and Danny is telling me, I could see it. He's going, don't move. He's mouthing the words underneath the water. Don't like a spear is just going to piss this fucking thing off. Yeah. So yeah. he's like, don't move, don't move. Uh, the second time I was in Puerto Rico, um, this would have been, I guess this would have been a little later than that, maybe three or four years later. And I was at a, uh, uh, a nightclub, but it was a, it wasn't like a, like a disco. It was more, uh, it was more of like a, just a shanty town type of nightclub. And, uh, a guy pulled a knife on a member of my party. Nice. Uh, and that was, I, I, in, you're in a foreign country. You're just like, yeah, we're going to be fucking killed. And that's it. Yeah. So those are probably the two times that I was most scared. Lou, anything on your, uh, on your mind when you think of real life situations where you were, uh, Scared shitless, if you will. Yeah. Well, I'd say, and I'd be considering myself lucky, but it was early on after I got my driver's license and I was, I had gotten my driver's license late in life, like the age of 23. And it was the first car I had ever driven a 1979 Datsun 210. Of course. The B210, wasn't it? I think this one was a 210. I'm, I'm not sure what happened to the B. But uh <laughs> you got a limited edition, of course. Yeah, exactly. Nineteen seventy-nine station wagon. And of course the year I think was nineteen ninety-five. So they'll tell you how hip and happening a car it was. I was driving, I was on a lunch break, I was coming back to work, I was on the one oh one freeway, and it was pouring buckets. And I came up over a hill and coming down, I just saw everybody was just hitting their brakes. And so I hit my brake, hit it extra hard. And of course, you know, these aren't ABS disc brakes or anything. These are shitty Datsun 
1979 brakes. And so my car starts fishtailing and then it spins out to where I'm, you know, seeing both the car and my life flash before my eyes. I hit the brake. You know, I keep applying pressure to the brake. I'm finally stopping. And thank God I hit nothing. I look to my left. There is a, a woman in a, I want to say a Jeep. And she and I are both heaving a sigh of relief. And then the person behind her rear ends her and then hits, you know, she hits me. But it was, you know, altogether, I wasn't injured. I don't think anybody was injured, but it was just, it was a holy shit sort of moment. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, I will say, uh, Brian, uh, when he asked, asked whether or not, uh, the cancer diagnosis I received and, and certainly, you know, having a, ta- a doctor tell you, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that, uh, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, and as I've retold the story before, uh, going out to the car with my wife and asking my wife, does this mean I'm going to die? Uh, that is, uh, the proverbial definition of, uh, come to Jesus uh, moment, you know? So, uh, but, uh, I was thinking of something else. Uh, it's a story that, uh, uh, Lou does not know this story. Barry, uh, Barry heard the full story on a, on a road trip to go have dinner with Dory Funk. Oh, uh, I know that story. <laughs> yes. And, and yes. I, I call it, to, I call it the greatest story ever told. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I am holding the, the entirety of the story, uh, for a Patreon episode because it's that compelling. Uh, let's just say it involves, uh, me, uh, doing something I shouldn't have been doing with somebody that I should not have been doing it with. Uh, and there were, uh, notes left on my car. Uh, there were threatening voicemails left on my phone. Uh, and, uh, the person leaving the threatening, uh, messages on my phone and on my car, it was a member of law enforcement, which heightened the fear factor. Needless to say, as I began to think that this particular person could make me disappear somewhere in the Everglades rather quickly. Uh, so I will, uh, Perhaps tell the, the the more of the story because Barry, fair to say, it's pretty good stuff. It's really good too, and this is uh, you're smart to save this for the Patreon because I think what made the story so compelling to me was this wasn't something that was a rushed uh, story. This we had a, we had an hour long car ride, and I think this took the entire hour. Like we, you just laid it out, and I was when we got there, I was like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. So anytime you're uh, dealing with, uh, with with sex with a hint of violence, uh, yeah, it's always compelling listening. Uh, needless to say. So yeah, but look for that on a future Patreon episode. All right, Barry, we are joined by not one time Hall of Famer, as I was reminded, two times, two times, Barry, two times Hall of Famer. It is the uh, one, two, three kid. It is X Pac. It is Sean Waltman, Barry. How cool is that? And you, I'm and not going to bring up fucking Jerry Lynn. It's just the lightning kid. I was going to say in the lightning kid, but we do. This is a, uh, you know, look, it's a two-time Hall of Famer. This is somebody, Jeff, that you and I have been following his entire career. Uh, and it's somebody essentially that we consider kind of one of ours because he grew up in Florida. And much like you and I did in our formative years, we grew up watching professional wrestling in Florida. So we are super excited to have Sean Waltman with us today. Sean, welcome to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Man, hey, thank you. See, like I, when Jeff hit me up for this, um, like Jeff, I have a feeling you were just like taking a shot in the dark. Going, I probably won't do it. But no, man, as soon as I seen that, I was like, yeah, as long as we can talk about Florida wrestling. You know? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so. <laughs> cause I really, I get, I get a, 
dude, I get so many of these requests and, and good people too. I just don't have the, I just don't have the time to do, to, 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 you know, to go on everyone's shows, but, but, but you put it out there, man. And I'm like, Oh, I could talk about Florida wrestling and I can bring up Tom Nash. (laughs) (laughs) Now at least we know Tom's going to listen to one of our fucking programs. (laughs) One episode. (laughs) If there's a one mention of Tom Nash, now we've got one extra listener this week. Yeah. So anyway, Hey, what's that? Is Tom still around? Yeah, he's still around. He still lives down in South Florida and stuff like that. You know, bitchy and complaining uh, as like ever, you know, so, but uh, I'm still in uh, contact with him often. He's a good guy. So, uh, so anyways, what what we wanted to do was we're going to talk primarily with Sean about the very beginnings of his career in wrestling. And uh, we start off, Sean, uh, tell us about your start as a wrestling fan, not necessarily as a wrestler. Who were you first into? What, What got you interested? All that kind of stuff. So, um, my first live event, my first live wrestling experience, this is a hell of a first wrestling match, Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes for the WA world title in the main event. And it was 1982. It was, uh, the Bayfront center in St. Pete, Florida, kind of like Florida's Madison square garden between that, that and maybe Jacksonville. I don't know. And you're you're 100 correct, uh, Sean. So Jacksonville on a weekly basis was drawing the most, but St. Pete was that once a month card on a Saturday that was kind of like the Madison Square Garden of the South. Yeah, it, it kind of looked like a miniature Madison Square Garden even in, inside there. Yeah. So yeah, it was a great place to experience my first uh, live match. And uh, I think I was mentioned to you before. Uh, the Midnight Rider was the special outside uh, referee, like the outside enforcer. And so, like, obviously, that's a tricky situation. And I was trying to, everyone was waiting to see what was going to happen, right? And so, like, Midnight Rider comes out first. It's like Blackjack Mulligan uh, goes back in. Like, you could tell it's Blackjack under the mask. I don't know how they found a trench coat that fit him. But anyways, <laughs> um, he goes back, and like a minute later or two later, you can tell it's Charlie cook under the mask and I'm 10 years old, man. And I can tell this. So, um, it was just a really cool bit. Cause like the undercard had everyone from that era, you know, like I got to see Kevin Sullivan and the purple haze, you know, come out with their, with their whole, uh, entourage. And, uh, um, was, what, was, straight- was, was Butch Reed still there or had he gone to another? No, Okay. Butch was like when I was watching on TV, like Butch was there in like '81-ish or something like that. I think. Okay. It was '82, and then, but the card you're describing was like the second half of 1982. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't get a chance to see him live, but but like I said, like the the, the Sullivan uh, crew, um, Adrian Street. Imagine seeing Adrian Street as a ten year old back then. And like, <laughs> yeah. pretty sure he was in a match with with Brad Armstrong. Yep. And he painted, it was either Brad Armstrong or, or Terry Allen, but cause Terry T, Magnum TA was on the show, just Terry Allen at the time. And oh, tr- um, trust me, Barry is going to pull up the exact date and specs <laughs> of the event after this. Yeah. Interview's I, over. I'm sure I got it. Yeah. But, but, uh, Adrian street put makeup all over. I think it was Brad's face and it was such a big deal, man. Um, there was blood, you know? Um, so everything you could ask for. 
in this one show. So I was hooked, man. I was literally like hooked from from that moment on. I was going to be a wrestler. So were you a regular attendee at the matches there in St. Pete? I was because the person that I uh, that I knew uh, worked there as a, as an usher. And so I was backstage. I wasn't even in the crowd. I was 10 years old backstage at the, I don't know if you ever been to Bayfront, but yeah. they had the rooms and then a backstage area, you know? Um, and they would still kayfabe in that area, but you were still backstage with them. Yeah. It was amazing, man. So I was speaking to our executive producer, Brian last, who gives a shout out to you, by the way, who told me, he says, ask Sean about Billy Jack, because he was a huge Billy Jack fan back in the day. Yes. Yes. Because so between that and I, and I started going to the, the matches at Bayfront like every every month, but then they stopped doing them for a while. And I might have fallen off for a couple of months. And then Billy Jack is coming on on TV. And it was like six weeks in a row, just like vignette or a little like a little snippet of him like from a bodybuilding show and we never see anything like that. Right. Like, yeah. Like Zach. And so when he came and he came, finally they had a show in Bayfront center again. No, no, we couldn't see him at the Bayfront. We had to go to Tampa. They started running. Um, they switched over from, uh, the Fort Esterly armory to doing once every two weeks at the Tampa Sundome. Right. So I show up there and, uh, and so superstar Billy Graham's there now, and they're into this, you know, uh, arm wrestling thing. It was just so great, man. Yeah. Sitting yeah. there, superstar Graham walking to the building with his big ass guns hanging out his shirt. It was just, I was in awe of all of that, man. Just, these are my heroes. I mean, probably like the same with you guys. I don't know. Sure. So Barry, you were saying uh, that Billy Jack had a particular car that Sean probably would be familiar with. So Billy Jack had a rep at the, at that time, and you hear this from a lot of fans who were around back in that in those days. That Billy Jack, after every show, no matter the town he was in, even the small little spot shows, Billy Jack would sign every autograph. He would take every photo, and he used to drive a Corvette, and he would actually let fans take photos of him with the Corvette as well. Yeah, yeah. But so um, originally, he came to Florida in a and like it wasn't black, it was midnight blue. It was almost black. Uh, Trans Am, and it had louvers on the back of it, and uh, nice wheels, and it had the Oregon license plate still on it. And like he never changed the oil, so uh, the 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 engine <laughs> on the way to- that doesn't work out so well. I think that's not going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he showed up to the Lakeland Civic Center in a in a uh, cargo van, a white cargo van. So, um, and, 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 and I know this because he shared that with everybody. Like he was there, he was like, you're saying after every show, man, he was out there talking to us and making us feel like, you know, like he, like he cared. Right. And, and, and I, and I love dusty and everything, but my first experience at the Bayfront center, I was telling you, I was in the backstage area and I asked him for an autograph and he said, no, son. Yeah, at uh, least it, at least you got a response. I, <laughs> I I can tell you growing up in Florida how many times I either approached Dusty or saw people approach Dusty and literally like ice wouldn't even acknowledge them. So at least he you got a note courtesy stuff. to give you a finger. He didn't even have the courtesy to do that. No, but 
and I get, and I love Dusty late, like later on, we, you know, when I worked with him and everything, but this is just the truth, man. Um, and then the, the second time I asked was at the sun dome and instead he handed me a bag of garbage to throw away. <laughs> sounds like Dusty. He, <laughs> cared, he cared about the fans for God. He cares about, about having garbage, Jeff, and littering. That's exactly that's what it was. Sure. So, so at what point you, you said at this point you were like 10, 11 years old or whatever. So at what point did you decide this is what I got to fucking do? That, that first night. Yeah. The first Claire versus Dusty. Yeah, man. And, and yeah. like some so, people say, oh, I want to be a wrestler, but no, I lived and breathed it from that moment on, man. I learned everything I could about it. And, uh, you know, um, I didn't, I, I was too young. I didn't really, you know, um, like there was no ob- observer. There might've been the observer at the time, but I just, I wasn't aware of it until, you know, about the time that I, I was about ready to break in. Yeah. But. So, so how was it that you uh, were able to reach out and find a connection like with Larry Simon, the great Malenko? How did that whole st- thing start? Uh, well, Phyllis used to come to the shows at, at sure. The, okay. So, so they moved from, uh, Fort Hesterly Armory to the Tampa Sundome. They were there for a few years and then they had to downgrade, uh, go from, uh, Tampa Sundome to university of Tampa sports, sports center or field house. They called That's it. it. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, Phyllis would come to those, you know, and I think she was friends with Danny, um, Dan, Danny Miller, you know, and, and that, and, you know, cause Malenko, you know, he had the big falling out with, with Eddie, but he's still Eddie Graham. Sorry. I don't know Eddie, uh, well enough to call him by his first name. Oh, I didn't. Anyways, whatever. Um, so Phyllis Lee, everybody, um, she was like Malenko's right hand woman. She did everything like, Helped him promote all the shows, get students and everything. And people might know Phyllis uh, later on for uh, managing Dan Severn and getting him into the UFC. Uh, so I, Phyllis I, first, I, I first met Phyllis when uh, they were affiliated with the old uh, Global Wrestling, uh, I guess right. it was Global Wrestling Alliance, was it, Barry, yeah. or Federation? The, uh, and GWA, uh, right. Yeah. So they, yeah, so they were, she was helping, uh, you know, Malenko and all those guys that were, were doing that. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story, Sean. So, so we're outside and we're talking and Phyllis is like, I don't know, taking tickets or whatever. And so uh, uh-huh. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, oh, you know, the uh, greatest wrestler in the world right now, it, it's gotta be Nobuhiko Takata. And she turns and looks at me and she goes, it is not Takata. It is Joe Malenko. And she got, like, <laughs> got all testy on me. Cause I said Takata instead of Joe Malenko. She was a really nice lady though. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. That sounds exactly like her. And, yeah. and, you know, Joe, Joe was Carl's, like, probably Carl's, I mean, right. you hear he was Carl Gotch's best American student. Yep. Yeah. It, in, it, it, Joe, uh, and I'm friendly with Jody, and Jody considered Carl not just a mentor, but almost a father figure. Uh, and to that end, I reached out to Jody this morning, and I mentioned that we're going to be having Sean on the podcast. And I said, so what kind of memories do you have? And uh, what he said was, he goes, he was a skinny little kid that loved my pop, lots of talent. I knew this guy was going to make it, which coming uh, from Jody, that's huge. Yeah. And, and see, Jody was just out here doing a seminar with boss Rutten. Right. You were trying to connect and it was just, our schedules didn't permit it, man. I was so bummed out. I wanted to, man, I, cause uh, you know, the last time I saw Joe was when WrestleMania was in Orlando and he showed up like, he goes, he might not even recognize me. He was a little bit, he had a few extra pounds on him, but, Dude, are you kidding me? 
I'm not going to not recognize a Malenko. Get the fuck right. out of here. Yeah, he still <laughs> looks. He still looks like like Joe Malenko. I mean, he's you know he's uh, still in good shape and he's doing well. I reached out to somebody else that you had trained, which with was Frankie Reyes, and yeah. Uh, yeah, Frankie said he spent some time with you. That you guys were in the ring together quite a few times. Frankie's still working as a referee in and around Tampa and Central Florida. Uh, but what was it like? You were so young, and I've seen the photos of you you training with Malenko in the ring. And yeah. how old were you? 14, 15 years no, old, no. Matt? I looked like I was about that age, but I was like 15 and 16 years old. You know, it's just, I was a late bloomer, you guys. Um, I mean, even, I, I had to get on testosterone when I was like 24 uh, to be able to grow facial hair. You know, like, it I had works. a little... Yeah, normal. <laughs> it definitely it definitely worked out yeah. so what was it like though because at at that stage and you had never seen malenko ever wrestle at least you know no. he was pretty much retired at that point but did you understand who he was at that stage and his legacy okay by the time i actually met him i was somewhat familiar because like some of the older wrestling fans that i knew because i knew all the regulars at championship wrestling from florida sure. and they would talk about the great malenko eddie graham Russian chain matches that kind of put Florida on the map. It's true. You know? And and then there was, you know, the talk of the big the big uh falling out and and then Malenko starting his own opposition and like going on TV and challenging the the Grams with I guess with, with Jody and, and uh and Dean. Uh so like there was all that and you know, I didn't know there was any such thing as independent, what they called outlaw wrestling out there. Oh, those are outlaw shows. And, hey, you know what I forgot to mention to you guys? From the time I was first went to my first show, at, uh, I got my foot in the door a little bit because I would help Gordon Nelson set the ring up every night. Oh. I would go to other towns even, you know, like some of those spot show towns or or uh, Lakeland Civic Center. Like I would go to Sarasota, all of them. Sarasota had its own ring. A lost art, by the way, of breaking people into the business by having them do stuff like that. That was, you know, I I know that's the way Barry Windham started out in Amarillo was he was helping them put up the rings. And, and then, and so when I got a Malenko, like I was able to earn my keep. I I didn't have any money. You know, he was nice enough to train me. I made all the tickets and posters because I I was computer literate and not who was back then. You know, it was in the late. I'm age. not now, but that's Jeff still story. isn't right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was just, man, I had, I got that gra- grassroots, uh, from the very, like I knew every job there was almost right. Like I knew how to, I refereed some, I, I set the ring up. I made the tickets and posters help with, you know, grassroots promoting. So I kind of, you know, I had a little bit of a foundation actually. Yeah, one of the so things. Let, let me ask about, you. So now, and Jeff, it, Jeff wait, hold on a second, Barry. Jeff Malenko. All right. Okay. You, okay. <laughs> Which one of us? But uh, so with Malenko too, his legacy as a trainer is kind yeah. of unheralded because if you look at the names of the guys he's trained and the guys who made it, you know, more importantly, guys that really made an impact in the business, the list is probably 50, 60 names long. Uh, but he doesn't get the due. He doesn't get the due of of what he deserves. Uh, and I think, you know, Jody has been so instrumental in trying to get the word out. And then a couple of years ago, uh, I think it's actually more, it's like five years ago, Jody was instrumental in getting a wall of fame 
put in the old Ford Hesterly Armory, which is now the JCC, uh, and he's yep. done that. So did you ever have a chance to ever work with the Malenkos? Did you ever work with Dean? Uh, not, not when I was... Not not when I was first starting. Obviously, like when we got the WCW and and then WWE a little bit, but uh, no, not early on. He didn't do actually. He did do quite a bit, uh, quite a few uh, shows for his dad, but like I was never in those matches. Like those were the main event matches. Like I was, I was the black dart uh, <laughs> under a hood, black sweatpants and sweatshirt, and uh, getting getting beat by Haiti Kid Birdo on Suncoast Pro Wrestling. Yeah, like a lot of people don't know that. Like that was <laughs> was that because they were using you as a lawn dart because <laughs> yeah. you were so small. Basically, so what I, yeah. What I, what I was going to ask you was when you were talking about uh, your time of you know doing the posters, putting up the ring, acting as a yeah. ref. So tell me, compared to some guys, because you know, quite frankly, one of the complaints that I had as a fan was somebody with Luger, like Luger, okay? And, of course, Luger had a completely different, you know, look and 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 body than than somebody like you did when you started. And I always felt like he didn't appreciate the business. Now, somebody like you, who was, of course, a fan, but started off doing all that stuff, putting up the ring and uh, just, you know, getting your toe in the door. Did you Do you feel like that gave you a greater appreciation for the business than maybe somebody like Luger who just had it handed to him? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Lex, Lex would say that. I just had Lex on my show a couple of weeks ago, and he would say that. Um, uh, but, you know, it was with the times, the way, you know, the way they were changing, like he was the, he was a good, you know, fit for, for where the business was going. And I at least got to, got to credit him for making it through heroes training. Like yeah. most guys, like that's some hard training, man. It doesn't get any harder than that. Yeah. So how, how many squats did you do? <laughs> done 500 before. Yeah, no, I've heard the horror stories about the, uh, yeah. the guys that did thousands of squats and stuff like that. And, and, no, 500 is enough to make it so you can't walk for two or three days. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, but, um, so Larry Neck, uh, I'm sorry, Barry Next. Could you as call me Larry? As opposed to what our friend Larry. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this show. We haven't missed it. Sean, we have not missed an episode. We drop every Tuesday 186 episodes. Right this on. is my best friend. He just fucking called me Larry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds like something I would do. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John right. Waltman, here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, so so with the training and all that with, with Malenko, uh, it, how much time did you actually spend with him? And who else was doing the training uh, at his school? Okay, so Tom Nash and Dave Heath were driving in every weekend from, from down in your neck of the woods. Um, uh, shit, who else? Um, Mark Miro came for a couple of weeks. Um, let me see. Well, Kane was there after me. He left. He uh, Rico Federico. Yeah, you guys familiar with him? Yeah, I've heard the name. Uh, I'm trying to think of people that actually. So were, were, were Tom and Dave doing the whole Blackheart thing yet, or did just a couple of young boys training? Uh, they were just. They were just starting that. They were just trying to. Like, they were just getting. They hadn't gone to Calgary yet, so I don't think okay. they like. They might have thought of of the act, the look, and everything, but the Blackheart yeah. thing, the bastard sons of Stu Hart. Sure, yeah, and Mula. Stu Hart, Stu Hart oh, and yeah. Mula. <laughs> that was the gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like I was with those guys every 
day, man. Like, um, and I slept on, I, I lived with Phyllis, slept on her, on her floor or on her couch for a while with Wellington Wilkins Jr. There you go. You're pointing at me, Jeff. I just, uh, well, okay. I'll take it. next. <laughs> right. So things are going smoothly here. So one of the yeah. guys, Sean, of course, that, uh, I actually had a chance to interview back in the day, uh, that was just, a. I think he literally is called the God of pro wrestling in Japan is, is Carl Gotch. How much uh, training did you do with Gotch? He showed up. Uh, Masami was my teacher for, sure. for Soranaka. Yeah. Masami Soranaka. He was Carl's son-in-law. Sure. Yep. Uh, and he was a great teacher too, but it sounded cooler to say like you were trained by Carl Gotch. Sure. Uh, so, but I never was, I, he, he came to the, came to the school a couple of times and stood outside and watched me get stretched. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> he, he didn't volunteer to do it to you. Cause certainly that would uh, not be something outside the realm of possibility. No, I was nowhere to the level that he would gotten. Yeah, no, but that was on Sundays they did. Uh, they trained for UWF, you know, like UWF Japan, the submission. And so, you know, we learn, you didn't really learn the real stuff unless you came on Sunday. So was it more training in the UWF style or more taking care of yourself if you needed to? It was submission. It was, it was, you know, learning the submissions and like really learning it. Um, so yeah, no, I wish I could say I was training. Uh, loose face says it all. I th- Sean, I think we lost you. No, I'm back. There you okay. go. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, I wish I could say I was trained by Carl and I might've mentioned it a, a couple of times insinuated it, but it wasn't true. <laughs> Did I mention I'm trained by Carl? God, just get away from me, motherfucker. You know, something like that <laughs> it makes for a good story, right? I mean, exactly. shit. Carl yeah. Gotch, the God of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, did, did, did Jody Simon have a hand in your training as well? He came a bit like, like I didn't get in the ring with him much, but, um, he was there, but you know, Jody, by that time, Jody was the smart one, right? Like actually not, not that Dean's the dumb one. I didn't mean it like that, but Jody was just smart for anybody getting into wrestling. He, you know, he had a, you know, he had a, a plan B, which ended up being his plan a probably because he, he went to pharmaceutical school he became, yep. he, he ended up owning a, a pharmacy, uh, which he sold and, and, you know, ended up doing all kinds of other things that made him a bunch of money. I'm so oh, happy. The <laughs> money. Absolutely. And Jody, and uh, you know, again, I, I've only met Dean a couple of times, Shelly, uh, as, yes. uh, as yes, as Joe, uh, ribs him in my, in my presence sometimes, but, uh, Joe, uh, you're hundred percent correct. He started the pharmaceutical company, sold it. He's got this like multi-million dollar mansion on the water in Tampa, uh, and could still stretch a motherfucker at any point. You would have no problem with it. Uh, just solid. But Jeff, I think you had a question, right? Yeah. So getting back to Sornaka, Gotch, Malenko. So did you ever get a chance to go over to Japan? Whether it was with the UWF group or anybody else? No, Masami at planned on taking me at, at some point and then i moved to minnesota and and then i ended up going to universal pro which is anything but uwf style and yeah. he actually got a little bit mad about that he was like what the hell what the is he doing you know and but i had already been gone from florida for you know for quite a while by then so um 
Yeah. No, I went to UWF. It just wasn't that UWF. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, just because, uh, you know, uh, the way that Soranaka might have trained you, I remember one of the things that made Gotch, when I interviewed him, crazy about the UWF guys like Maeda and Sayama and stuff like that was he hated the fact that they kicked because he felt like it took away from the, the realism of the uh, event. So did they give you a rash of crap because uh, you were so adept at the kicking stuff? No, actually, that's why they trained me because I was, I was, I was at martial arts. I trained, I started training martial arts when I was about 10. Yeah. Coincidentally, as I started liking wrestling and like, it was the, it was that ability that, you know, if I didn't know that they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been interested uh, in me for UWF, you know? Um, sure. And, and, and honestly, like how much of a success would I have been in the, in the business in general? If I, if I hadn't had that, you know, so I, that's my martial arts is what did it for me. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't even ask you and I, I can't believe we haven't asked this yet, Barry, but, and, and all the time as a fan going to St. Pete and all the arenas around that area, did you ever get a chance to meet Gordon? Which Gordon? Solely. Sorry. Yeah, because I used to skip school on Wednesday mornings and go to the sportatorium. I yeah, I was statue, statue of limitations has run out on that, by the way. So yeah, uh, yeah. you're safe. <laughs> and Eduardo Perez used to used to run me off because I would try to run up and talk to Gordon. One time I was talking to Gordon, like after the taping was was done, and I ran up behind the thing. You remember how the sportatorium was? They had that wooden barrier that oh, yeah. everyone yeah. over every other week. Um, and I ran up and talking to him, and out comes Eduardo Perez yelling at me. God, yeah, I, I can't even say the words he was saying. To we attend, encourage you, we encourage you to say the words if you'd like. Yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> his dick or some crazy shit like that. <laughs> the, the pride of Argentina. <laughs> Eduardo Perez. You guys, I started crying hysterically. And um, uh, remember Corporal Larry Siegel? No. He was the guy that, he was the cop that was always at all the Tampa shows yeah. and at the Portatorium. Anyways, he was a fixture in Tampa wrestling. Uh, and like he came and like, he smoothed it all over and then, you know, me and Eduardo were cool. And after that, Eduardo was nice to me. And, you know, I got to see Eduardo before he passed. Actually, he didn't remember that part. Yeah. Weren't and Eduardo and Malenko were like best of friends, right? So friends. Yeah. Okay. Malenko's best friends were like Eduardo Perez, Bob Orton, senior yep. Hans Morgan, yep. um, uh, George Scott. These the were all the from, guys. Which, yeah, from his generation. Yeah, sure. They would all like they always showed up at, at the school. Yeah, there's and there's photos that Jody has shared, which then I, I shared in our Facebook group. And it's uh, the last photo taken. And it was Eduardo Perez, great Malenko and Bob Wharton senior. Yeah. And I, I want to say Eduardo passed not too long after that. Uh, but these guys were lifelong friends and Mortier as well who I think was back in Belgium at that point, but he even came over. He came over to see both Malenko and Eduardo Perez before they passed. That's a oh, legacy yeah. right there. Absolutely. Oh yeah. He was very nice too. Just very, very cool guy. Yeah. Was that, was Eduardo living in the sportatorium at that time? Well, he was, he was there and he was like kind of the janitor. It was kind of sad. Right. Was he living there then? He was. So I guess in the upstairs where the office was, there was a, I guess, essentially a spare bedroom. And sometimes guys would stay there. Uh, Tito Carrion 
in the 1960s actually lived up there for a few years and even ran a signage shop out of there. And then Eduardo in his last few years, I think was living in the sportatorium as well. So he was probably doing some sort of cleaning to, you know, but yeah, he was there. He was. Do you remember when, when Crockett bought uh, Florida? And Sadly, they started, I do. Yeah. They did a few tapings from sportatorium still. Yep. Yes. And, and Mike Rotundo and Terry Funk had this big brawl that went all around the sportatorium and into the bathroom, and Terry Funk came out with the toilet seat on his head. Yes, I do remember that, yes. And Eduardo comes out, that crazy motherfucker, I haven't cleaned that toilet in years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. So, yeah, I remember that when they were doing the, the tapings in 87, that's when they had a match. I want to say it was Dundee, uh, the Barbarian. Um, yes. Can- the other two guys, and they were like went all over the building. It was a terrific brawl. It was like one of the better ones we'd seen in a couple of years. Uh, like the, like they would, they sent the mod squad down, and like yes, yeah. the Jeffers, Jeff- Jeffers yeah. Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they clean yeah. the sport of tourism up for that, though, I used to have a problem with this. Like, why did it? It couldn't have taken that much to to clean it up a little bit to make the ring look a little. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it was a. It, the thing with the sportatorium is we all have these fond memories of the sportatorium and we all kind of sit back and go, man, I wish wrestling could be like that. In reality, it was a fucking dump. I mean, let's, let's call <laughs> it what it, it was. It was our dump, Barry. It was, it was our, our dump, dump, but it was a dump. Yeah. And if it was, and if it was during the school season, like there was no one in there for the shows and it looked like shit on TV. Yeah. You knew when it was summertime because the place was packed. Packed, packed. And it was hot as shit because there's no air conditioning in oh, the building. God. Yeah. Whew. Orlando, same. Yeah. So, Barry, once again, we want to thank all our listeners and uh, the people on our Facebook group posting the Q&A for us to answer some good, solid questions. Barry, would you agree? I, I, Jeff, and I, I, how many times have we done this? Like four or five? Yeah, something like that. We're, I think we're not this have is... a podcast that does this like a monthly basis. I'm not going to mention any names. It would just be lazy to do something like that, right? But I, Jeff, I think this was the uh, by far actually the best batch of questions that, that we've ever gotten. Agree. Yes, we had and you said you said we only got one comical response. Yes. the rest were all legitimate yes. questions. That's amazing. Yeah, and so and Sean Waltman. Uh, today we uh, we had part one of our interview with Sean. We want to really thank him for his time. Uh, you know, and, and again, as Barry and I are want to say, we like to think that we're not the ordinary podcast. And I think that's part of what attracted someone like Sean to coming on our show, because it wasn't like, uh, let's talk about the stories of the flight, uh, you know, the WWE. And uh, no, we wanted to talk to him about, you know, being a fan of wrestling and CWF and his early memories and stuff. And I think he really, that was something that, it, you know, piqued his interest bear. Yeah, Ribera Steakhouse too, Jeff. Well, there you go. There's that yeah. also. So, so anyway, so on behalf of my uh, my co-host Barry Rose and our producer, the sweet man Lou Kippelman, out there, the city by the bay, city so nice they named it twice. Nope, that's the wrong one. And anyway, want to say thanks for listening, folks. And until next week, we will talk to you later. This has been a production. Oh, almost forgot there, Lou, of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Talk to you next week, folks. Mm-hmm.